At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we've got a really great show for you today. I'm really excited. I've got two incredible guests. First, I have with me Carla Castro-Frenzel, who's an attending anesthesiologist at Nemours Pediatric Hospital in Orlando, Florida, and Hale Sadat, who is an associate professor of anesthesiology at Quinnipiac University in Connecticut. And both of these fantastic uh, physicians are here to share some really powerful stories with you that I think will be really important. So we had this thought that, you know, we're all out there practicing medicine and we are taking care of people who are sick. And what happens if we as the physician get sick? What does that mean? How do we handle it? What do we do in terms of getting the support and the treatment we need and, and figuring out how to still do our jobs or what it means for our jobs? And there are, I'm sure, people out there listening whether you yourself or someone you know has been affected by this kind of a thing. And it's very possible that you don't know or your friend or family member doesn't know how to best handle this. And so I really feel blessed that uh, both Carla and Hale um, have agreed to share with you their stories of going through this and, and what they've done and how they are going through it right now and how they're um, approaching the, the struggles that they've had and, and really um, still thriving and, and wanting to help you if you're someone else who either now or in the future may be going through something like this. So I'm really grateful to both of them. Thank you both for coming on the show and for being willing to share your story with the audience. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you Jed. It's an honor to be here, Jed. Thank you so much. So Carla, um, why don't we start with you? And please, as much as you're comfortable, share um, with the audience um, the story of, of how you came to be on this, uh, on this podcast with this topic. Sure. Um, I just would like to mention on the outset that I'd like to dedicate um, my contribution to this podcast in loving memory of Gina Hollebeck, uh, president of Alka Positive for three consecutive years. Uh, we just lost Gina to the same disease I carry, Alka Positive. Uh, cancer. And I'd also like to de dedicate this to all the anesthesiologists who have contracted cancer during their careers. Um, so I'd like to start off with the setting of my disease. <laughs> I, um, I joined um, my beloved hospital in 2015. Um, the hospital was newly constructed and uh, growing. Um, but by, night, by 2019, the, suddenly the hospital's volume of patients uh, increased quite a bit, uh, as did the acuity of patients. Unfortunately, our um, staffing wasn't quite 
keeping up, uh, which is a challenge anytime there's a new hospital, of course, um, we had only 10 anesthesiologists and it was challenging at the time. I remember to try to hire people. They, they just weren't signing on. Um, and then something peculiar started happening. Um, anesthesiologists started getting sick. Uh, first one got sick and had to go on um, medical leave. And then the, the remainder uh, took up the call burden. Then a second anesthesiologist became so sick. He also had to go on medical leave. And then again, we took more call. Um, and although we did ask for um, some locums relief for to reduce the call burden, unfortunately, the opportunity wasn't um, wasn't uh, seized. I was the third anesthesiologist to fall sick. Um, and uh, what's remarkable is within two weeks of my diagnosis of um, alka positive lung cancer, a fourth anesthesiologist um, became sick. And that anesthesiologist was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and unfortunately, tragically um, died from his diagnosis um, shortly thereafter. So that was that's the setting. And I, I just want to start with that. Um, I never have felt my disease, actually. What I felt was a lymph node when I was on call. Um, one afternoon as my hand grazed my collarbone, there it was, this very firm marble-like uh, um, mass uh, over, right, right over my left collarbone. Um, that immediately got my attention as I did pay a lot of attention <laughs> to oncology in medical school. Um, I, I happened to have a, a breast surgeon who had taken care of me for like a benign lump for a number of years. He had just discharged me, but I, I contacted him immediately. Um, and he, that led to the imaging, uh, which led to the diagnosis. What's remarkable is that um, I was at work and was essentially diagnosed while at work. I, um, I had a CT scan on a Friday and I knew the results would be there on a Monday. And I prepared my boss. I told my chair, I said, I'm probably going to get some bad news. Um, I knew it was probably going to be either a lung or a pancreas or, you know, because I, I didn't have any symptoms. It was the only, I knew that lung cancer can hide um, and be asymptomatic. And so Monday morning, I'm in MRI. I get my first patient to sleep. My personal phone rings, um, and I remember my dialing the number. I know exact the exact spot where, where um, I called him back on his personal cell, and standing right there in the you know right outside the MRI scanner in the nurse's station was where I was diagnosed. So I learned I had advanced stage lung cancer in the workplace, and I just gonna let that sink in for a minute just so we can reflect on how much life we do spend in the hospital. Um, uh, in psychology, they, they call the giving of such bad news medical trauma. And although my surgeon was trying to help me, I don't think he realized the trauma I was experiencing. I'd always imagined that a doctor would tell you such sensitive information in a comfy chair in his office, perhaps over a cup of tea. Um, unfortunately, as a physician, one's own doctor can treat one a little differently because we are actually all colleagues to each other. Um, we may be perceived as tougher than other non-physician patients. Um, and I cannot express how freakishly weird 
um, it was to have my very competent medical brain turn into complete shock as hell, patient mush brain. Um, when I eventually was seen by an oncologist, uh, she sounded like she was speaking a foreign language to me. I felt as though my thoughts were blunted, slowed, as if I could not remember anything she said. And yes, indeed, you become a real patient, <laughs> like Pinocchio, a real boy um, in, in such a short amount of time. Um, and we're told that these are all the things that a patient experiences, but it's so different actually evolving into a patient yourself. Um, I underwent two different biopsies. Um, the first one was through bronchoscopy and didn't yield enough uh, tissue for what they call next generation sequencing to grow the cells and look for an oncogene. So I had to undergo a second procedure, which was actually a procedure I had requested in the beginning, an excisional node biopsy, because two weeks after I found the initial lymph node, more lymph nodes crept up on my, in my neck, both, both sides. I knew this thing was on its way to my brain if it hadn't already arrived. Um, so I got the second biopsy. Uh, so overall, it took four weeks to get the diagnosis of ALK positive or ALK driven lung cancer. I knew nothing about ALK positive, um, but I remember that my oncologist called me uncharacteristically giddy. She was happy and excited because my tumor was ALK positive and she stated I wouldn't need chemo nor radiation, just targeted therapy in the form of pills that I would take twice a day. Uh, within two weeks of starting targeted therapy, my lymph nodes began to disappear. And within six months of treatment, I had no evidence of disease. Through grace and science, I have had the incredible blessing of remaining with no evidence of disease for over three years and a wonderful quality of life. I get scans and labs quarterly, and I see two oncologists, my local oncologist here in Florida, Dr. Jennifer Singh. And uh, once a year, I see Dr. Vincent Lamb, who's an expert in ALK-driven lung cancers at John Hop Johns Hopkins. Yeah, that was, that was the beginning. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Carla. I really um, appreciate you being willing to share that uh, story. I can't imagine what it must have felt like to get that diagnosis at work, uh, as you described. And, um, you know, I, I hope that others don't... Um, have to do have to experience that, but as you said, we spend a huge amount of our lives at work, and so it is. You know, you can imagine this. There's probably other people who have or will have that experience, and I'm sure it'll be helpful to hear um, more from you about how how it played out and how you you dealt with it from then on. So, thank you for sharing that, Halle. Why don't we um, hear your your story? Uh, my story is more chronic. Um, I um, was first diagnosed when I was in my 30s. And um, one day I just woke up and went to the emergency room because I had a very sharp pain on my flank. And um, at that point, um, they did obviously a CT scan and I got the news, <laughs> surprise, surprise, you have uh, polycystic kidney disease. Um, and one of the cysts um, had hemorrhage, that's why the pain was that bad. Um, so... Um, uh, we didn't have any family history of TKD. We don't have it. Um, so it was, it was very strange. Um, I kind of like put it in the back. It's kind of like most of physicians, you know, you, you know that something is there, but you're like, well, I'm not as sick as other people that are around me. So I was really not paying attention to it. My GFR was not that bad either. 
and you know it was going down like around 40s until three years ago that um it started to steadily coming down like it was suddenly 30 and then it was going down to like 35 so um and then suddenly i got a news um um, on September, um, that um, early October uh, this year, that my GFR dropped under 20, and um, they, um, my nephrologist called me and placed me on a um, transplant list. Um, uh, thankfully, I'm not on dialysis yet, uh, but um, I'm waiting for a transplant. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, as you said, really, um, you know, you kind of had this diagnosis at 30, but it didn't it didn't play much of a role in your life other than kind of being in the background until this acute change, which, which was a surprise, right? I mean, this was not something that, mm-hmm. that you had anticipated. And so um, I'm, you certainly um, appreciate you sharing that and, and look forward to hearing more from you as well. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about, um, and, and Carla, you touched on this a little, um, but maybe tell us a little more about some of your initial reactions, emotions, fears, what, what went through your head? You know, I, I think it's people clearly are going to have, um, you know, these experiences and are, and are going to think whatever's going on, whatever they're thinking and want to know, you know, uh, what, what other people think, what have other people been through? So I think hearing what you and Halei, I'll ask you the same question, um, you know, what, what initially went through your head? Sure. Um, this is why I wanted to do this podcast, because I, I know I can't be the only one uh, going through this. Um, I was terrified of being separated from my children and my husband by death. That was first and foremost. Still remember getting an MRI of my brain, my initial MRI of the brain, and crying. It was on Valentine's Day, and it was the whole time I'm getting scanned. I'm thinking about how much I love my husband and how much I don't want to um, leave him. I was terrified of pain and suffering, of my children seeing their mother die, of disfigurement. Um, this may sound vain and silly, but I've always enjoyed fashion I've always enjoyed (laughs) it sounds so flippant and silly makeup and just taking pride in how you put yourself together um so I was really horrified of of potential disfigurement of dying in my sleep I was too terrified to research anything other than the prognosis of stage four lung cancer which was 19 months to two years according to Dr. Google I spent the month I was waiting final diagnosis crying, ruminating about each cancer patient I'd ever taken care of, asking myself if I had brought this disease upon myself. I worried that I, would, that I was a horrible person and I had brought this upon myself. I actually felt ashamed to have this disease. I felt as though I had somehow caused it, even though that was clearly illogical. Sometimes... Our upbringings, though well-intended, have deleterious effects. I sometimes wonder if our medical education, though also well-intended, might have a compounding effect here. In my case, I was raised with a very authoritarian brand of religion in a very authoritarian household. That uh, upbringing may have groomed me for further authoritarian style education where fear is used as a tactic to control thoughts and behavior. I think many physicians suffer from fearfulness. It took a cancer diagnosis for me to realize that fear is nothing more 
than a lack of faith. And I do not mean that in the religious sense. We need faith desperately sometimes. We all must be able to have faith in our spouses, in our children, in our friends, colleagues, our patients, and in our own doctors. Yeah. And, and thank you. And I, I think, you know, that can be so hard, especially for doctors, right? <laughs> we're, we're, we're so used to wanting to have control over everything and it can be hard to trust others. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Hale, um, how about you? What, what were some of your initial reactions, emotions, and fears? Uh, well, I mean, since the internship, I have um, always had this strange horror of dialysis. Um, those patients always look super sick and uh, miserable. And as an anesthesiologist, we mostly see our end-stage renal disease patients at their worst when they need a fistula, you know, um, revisions and different procedures. So I could not help thinking that this is where I'm going. Um, Initially, when my GFR was okay, um, I was not worried about it too much. And for a long time, I was just denying everything. And, um, but the boring started when um, the function was coming down steadily. And then at last minute, then I um, eventually found out that um, I am actually going to need a transplant. I totally panicked. I mean, it was as if, like, I just heard it yesterday. It was very rational because I already knew about my polycystic kidney disease, but um, I, I never thought that it's real. The nightmare suddenly become real for me. And mm. um, it's kind of like the whole world changed at that point. Yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine. Well, thank you um, for sharing that. So I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, Carlo, you, you talked about how shocking it was in that moment um, you know, to get the diagnosis and, and Halle, you talked about how, again, just, you know, this, even though you knew you had this underlying illness, you know, you just, you didn't really expect it to happen. And then all of a sudden the shock of it happening. So, you know, I'm, I'm curious and, and Carla, I'll start with you. How did you handle the shock? Did you seek counseling? Did you try to get therapy? Did you, you know, try using medications? How did you handle what, what is a shock? I, I can't even imagine the, the extremity of that kind of a shock. How did you handle it? And what did you find helpful? That's a really great question, Jed. Thank you for um, asking. I did not handle it well. Um, I acted completely helpless. I cried and cried and screamed like a caged tiger, like literally screamed in my bathroom, throwing the phone. I, 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 I just couldn't get out of my situation. I fought hard against accepting the reality of my diagnosis. No, it didn't even occur to me to ask for counseling, therapy, or medication. In hindsight, a general anesthetic would have been the most humane thing to have given me. I should have been placed in a pharmacologic coma where I could do no harm to myself, not even through my thoughts. You see, I even thought about suicide. I could not stand the thought of my own suffering, and I realized that there is an occupational hazard in anesthesia that I had never been aware of before. Suicide by self-euthanasia. I knew that the best euthanasia would be a general anesthetic without any airway management. I had all the tools, the skills, the medications, the know-how, and access to an isolated call room. Fortunately, I related all of this at a visit with my oncologist with my husband present. She helped me mitigate the risk of suicide. 
she became very interested in my work environment, always asking about it at every visit. At one point, she did call upon a friend in the mental health field to set up a few appointments. Eventually, I did find a psychologist who works exclusively with physicians, and I see her from time to time as needed. Um, here, I'd like to mention a study from the year 2000 published in Anesthesiology, uh, which cites um, cause-specific mortality risks of anesthesiologists. This is actually published uh, or written by one of my uh, attendings at the University of Washington, Dr. Karen Domino. Um, the findings of this study included the revelation that female physicians show an increased risk of suicide much higher than both the general population and their male counterparts, with the standard mortality ratio for female anesthesiologists equal to 1.68 and for female internists uh, of 1.11. The following quote from this study chilled me to the bone. Quote, our results therefore suggest that substance abuse and suicide represent significant occupational risks for anesthesiologists. Now I can finally make sense of feeling suicidal following what is considered a terminal diagnosis. Um, so that, that was quite shocking um, to me, and as was the conclusion that we actually don't know whether or not working as anesthesiologists today in the OR poses an increased risk of developing cancer. Yeah, thanks, Carla. Um, really, uh, you know, I, I, I love that you kind of went through how you started off with what in retrospect felt like not handling it well, though I, I can't imagine anyone handling it any differently, but that you came, um, you know, around to to kind of what was more helpful to you and, and you know, found um, what is quite chilling, uh, the data on, on suicide um, in anesthesiologists and substance abuse. It's something as a program director that I think about all the time and and worry about, um, you know, in my, my residence. So um, thank you for sharing that as well. Um, I want to um, get to kind of what some of the specifics are of things and people that, that have helped and continue to help. But first, let me ask you, Halle, to share um, about any thoughts you have on how you handled your own shock and what, um, you know, how you approached that initially. Well, same with me. I didn't handle it well. That summer, um, uh, while my kidney function was falling apart, I was busy working on three different presentations for ISA um, and um, clinical work, homework, like, you know, life um, continues to happen. I fall apart to the point that I wanted to cancel all these um, um, uh, meetings and everything. I was in no shape or form to be there to present or anything like that. Um, fortunately, your organizers um, agreed and they were kind enough to agree uh, for me to record the talk and send it to them. Um, I, would, I desperately, need, desperately needed to talk to some physician, to another physician who went through something like this. It, it, it made a huge difference at that point, talking to someone who could give me like uh, some tips of how to go through, like what's going to happen, you know, what if I need dialysis and stuff like that or anything else. Um, I talked to a couple of my uh, friends in wellness committee to see whether there was something like that, you know, that we have a branch of our wellness uh, committee that um, deals with sick physician. Unfortunately, there was none. That's why 
we decided to just get together and just bring it up, like by sharing our stories, maybe other people can also come to um, to us and, you know, we can talk to each other about things that's happening. As far as therapy, um, in order to be um, on a transplant, you have to be under supervision of therapists. So, um, yeah, yes, I um, talk to a therapist and um, my fears are still there because I'm, I'm still in the middle of it. You know, I'm, 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 uh, I still don't have um, any um, kidney, you know, um, that's a possibility of going under dialysis. Um, so, but I mean, talking to her um, helps me to overcome some of the um, problems. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, I love that you said you, you felt this kind of deep desire to talk to someone else who had been through something like this and how hard that can be, right? I mean, you, you probably aren't going to send an email to your, you know, your group or your department and say, hey, has anyone been through this, right? So that's why I think this mm-hmm. is so important so that at the very least people can hear this and say, oh, I'm not alone, right? Someone else uh, that I can hear their story and, and maybe even talk to has been through this too. Um, so, Carla, um, when you think about uh, how how difficult this was, and I'm sure there are lots of people out there who may be lucky enough not to struggle with this themselves, but may have a colleague or a friend or a family member who does, um, and they may be thinking, and, and I think it's always true that when we have, you know, when we know someone who's going through something difficult, we often want to help, but we're not sure how or what's the right thing to do. And so, you know, tell me a little bit about what you found most helpful that either you found you could do or that other people did for you that was helpful, because I think that will really help people who want to help others, but aren't quite sure how to, how to do that in a way that will be seen as supportive and helpful. Yes. So that, that's a wonderful question because actually I was overwhelmed with people asking me, um, how they could help. I didn't even know what, what help I needed, but the most important thing that I did to help myself was uh, I actually chose to be very honest and transparent. And I told my colleagues about my diagnosis right away. Um, I took care not to relegate this task to the chair. I wanted to control the narrative. Um, at another point when uh, they were texting me and asking me how to help. Um, I asked for help. I said, I, I was very close to despair. I was losing any grasp I might have had on hope. And I knew that if I lost that, I would lose my life. I feared losing hope more than I feared losing my life. Because your mind can be a greater threat to your own well-being than even the emperor of all maladies. My colleagues responded by sending cards, books. They even sent uh, someone to come clean my house, which is amazing. <laughs> I, um, they sent food, groceries, flowers. I kept all of their cards. In case I ever get hospitalized again, I will have them close to me. Their outpouring of love is what saved me from despair. I work in a early, relatively small, freestanding children's hospital So we all knew each other quite well and work felt more like a cozy little family. I will forever be indebted to my little family of doctors, nurses, technicians, and administrators at Nemours Children's Hospital. They saved me from myself and the pit of despair. And there's no way I could ever repay that gift of life. There is something truly special about people who choose to work with sick children the intersection of intelligence and kindness. Great. Thank you, um, Carla. Um, 
Halle, what did you find uh, helpful either that you found for yourself or that other people were able to do to help you? I think first and foremost, the social support. Um, the studies have um, shown that social support is one of the most important things when it comes to you know, any kind of challenges in life. And I once I found the courage to talk really about my fears and emotions with my family and friends, that was um, the thing that helped me a lot. Um, I, I'm trying to use meditation, like just simply sitting in silence. I'm trying to be um, mindful. Um, once in a while, I try to take a moment just to be actually present during a simplest action, like washing your hands. Um, it's um, just like the fact of the matter that you're here and you're alive and you know you're, you're, you're healthy enough to just go back and forth with your life at this point. Who knows what's going to happen next month? So I'm trying to enjoy every moment of it as far as I can. Great. Thank you. That's, I'm sure, incredibly important. Carla, you mentioned before that you, you had so many, uh, you know, as, as I'm sure anyone would, in, you know, worries, acute kind of uh, fears and concerns um, about your family and other things. Tell us a little more about that. I'm sure anyone would have these thoughts. So it is probably going to be helpful for folks to hear more about what your worries and concerns were and, you know, how you initially approached that. Of course, um, I was and am still currently the sole breadwinner for my family. So, of course, I was afraid of my family's economic stability. I knew that I could not work myself to death. That was just not feasible. Um, And it's important to note that we all have the capacity to work ourselves to death. Fortunately, because of the diagnosis of ALK positive allowing me to live with targeted therapy, I was able to return to work. The human resources department at work asked me to register as an American with a disability. Um, Stage four lung cancer is automatically considered a disability because it is considered a terminal illness. Um, What's funny is I didn't know I was disabled. (laughs) Um, My oncologist uh, helped me negotiate a workable schedule so that I would work no more than 40 hours a week with no call. Um, The treatment I'm on is called electinib. Um, It is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. And it causes quite significant fatigue that feels like what I, what I imagine narcolepsy might feel like. I also suffered from a sudden drop in hemoglobin, also a side effect of um, electinib. My workplace was very accommodating, and I'm grateful and delighted to continue to help sick children while passing on my skills to our future anesthesiologists and enjoying this legacy of life. As for my sole breadwinner status through networking, we were able to find a job for my husband. And when his position was terminated, he was back, uh, he went back to school for a master's in electrical engineering, which uh, he looks forward to working in. I have helped him get into the career path he has always wanted. So I'm grateful to have had something to do with that. Um, my husband, Olaf, has been my rock and my most loving uh, caregiver uh, to me and my daughters. And um, his uh, positive outlook on life has helped me and taught me so much. I was frightened about the possibility of committing suicide as the stress of the diagnosis was so dire, especially since I was so near despair. Um, But my fear of suicide um, subsided with the reduced work schedule that my oncologist and I were able to negotiate with Nemours. I was able to obtain this accommodation 
um, via the American with Disabilities Act, which protected not only me, but my ability to continue working. Um, I was also terrified of being ripped apart, ripped, I'm sorry, ripped away from my vocation. Being suddenly placed on medical leave without a single symptom of illness was the most surreal experience of my life. I suddenly, desperately wanted to return to the workplace. I felt that they needed me. I became aware of my contribution to our patients and the entire team at Nemours. And it really hurt my soul not to be able to be there. And this is what surprised me the most. Um, I have not always had a, a, the most uh, harmonious relationship with my vocation. Sometimes it feels like an arranged marriage. Um, but how different it is now, how I adore it and marvel at the miracle that is anesthesia. Um, cancer can make you so aware, so present, so attuned to nature, to life. I find this the most surprising aspect of cancer and one that is not mentioned often. I often wonder if others experience it too. I guess I've been too embarrassed to ask. <laughs> yeah, right. And I mean, this is the kind of thing uh, that I think... Um is why I'm so grateful to the two of you for sharing this because there's, I, I'm very confident there are people out there thinking the same thing. Like, I wonder if anyone else is thinking this, but they're not going to ask. And so now they'll hear your story. Um, Hale, how about you? Um, what, what did you find um, were, were the real striking worries and concerns um, that you, you experienced and felt? Um, so, you know, I, I um, yeah, when I'm under stress, I become like, really into myself i don't cry i don't like scream and i don't want to talk to anyone other than someone who actually went through it so i you know we all um, uh, approach a stressful situation in different ways um so i was i kept thinking to myself you know uh, would i be able to get a transplant before i need dialysis and what happens to my family if i um, and my work when I go to dialysis, whether I can still go to work and um, sit hours on the machine and with the complications. Um, my family get the health insurance through me. So that was another stressful situation. You know, what's going to happen if I can't work and um, with, with the health insurance? And that was um, a lot of pressure and it was a very worrisome issue. And then um, later on, once I get, hopefully if I get a transplant, how I'm going to deal with the side effect of so many medications, you're going to be on like 40 pills a day. And uh, it's kind of like all of them have like a lot of complications and whether um, that's going to interfere with my life. Can I travel anymore? You know, it's just like, am I stuck here now? Like it's just... You know, you work all your life thinking that, you know, you're going to go traveling here and then suddenly you come up across a disease that now makes you like stuck in a place that you are. So all these things are going through my mind. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, I'm curious, I think a lot of people when they think of cancer or serious illness, think about support groups. And I'd love to hear, um, and Carla, we can start with you. Did you look for support groups? Did you ever take part in one? Did you find that helpful? Um, and if not, you know, what, what made you decide not to look at them? All right, stay with us. We'll be right back to hear about the experience that Carla and Halle had with support groups. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. 
by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, we're back. And the question was about whether they found support groups to be helpful. And we'll hear first from Carla. Initially, I didn't, and but then I did through longevity, and then about six months in, um, I found somebody in longevity made me aware of Alk Positive, um, the support group, and so I joined them, and that was such a relief because I was afraid. I initially didn't look for support groups because I thought, wait a minute, am I going to be stuck with a bunch of people who smoke and don't know anything about medicine? I mean, that's. I'm not like, I was acutely aware of how unlike other patients I am. Um, and I felt like this weird creature, like a Martian, like, where do you put me? Like, where do I put me? Um, there's not even a term, Jed, for when I did a literature search, there is no word that means physician patient. It's so hard to research this because there's, we don't have the vocabulary. We don't have the diction um, and I think we need it. We need a word that says physician patient. So um, without positive was a little better, a lot better, actually, because it was a bunch of people like me. Everyone looks young and healthy. Um, a lot of moms, uh, unfortunately, ALK, ALK uh, tends to occur uh, with the increasing, increasing incidence in females uh, around this age in the mid 40s. But there's children as well um, with ALK positive. Uh, I eventually got asked to serve on the board of directors. So I served as, uh, on the board of directors and that was immensely uh, rewarding. And I've recently transitioned uh, to serving on the clinical trials committee, which is immensely rewarding. Um, I'm help, able to help this volunteer run organization uh, made up of patients and their caregivers to find potential newer therapeutics discuss clinical trial design, and help introduce researchers to each other. My work on the committee is, is um, so rewarding, um, and I feel like I'm contributing to the solution rather than sitting there helpless. I think that sort of mindset is very typical of physicians as we are uh, rewarded for being doers. Um, the one thing that I, is difficult about support groups, however, um, is that if you do make friends, which you will, um, your friends may pass before you, um, and there's nothing that really can prepare you. Like I just mentioned, we just lost Gina Hollebeck, and um, it takes tremendous courage to participate in a support group. Last year, last November, for Lung Cancer Awareness Month, uh, my husband and I, um, along with Tin Men Productions, uh, made a, a micro-documentary for Alk Positive, and uh, two of the ladies, two of the four patients in that video or that documentary um, have now passed. So myself and one other are the survivors <laughs> so far. 
and that's that's really hard right that's really hard that you make something you put it out there to help your support group and then as it's not even been a year already you're seeing them pass um so it takes a lot of courage to be in a support group but it also can be very very satisfying if you're active yeah yeah absolutely thank you um Hale, how about you did you um look at into support groups or take part in any well, I did look at the same, the same thing as uh, Carla. I kept looking for sick physician, uh, Google it. And as soon as you put it in, it's just come like as physicians that are taking care of sick patients. Mm-hmm. There is nothing. You cannot find anything like as patients that they are, you know, physicians that are themselves that are sick. So, yeah, I, the only support group that I found was um, just like Carla, people who were um, had PKD and they were pre and post transplant, and uh, that was, um, uh, you know, the group that I joined. I actually learned a lot from them, um, because um, uh, as a physician, when you talk to another physician, sometimes they don't give you all the details of you go through because they think you know it all. Um, and um, so, with this group, I can, you know, see exactly what they went through, um, what kind of side effects this medication have. And I enjoy talking to them. I think it's very, very helpful. Great. Thank you. So I imagine that, you know, anytime we, uh, you know, anyone as as a resident, I know it's acute because I I try to help my residents through this all the time. And certainly I think for anyone, faculty as well, if you are even just sick for a day, if you have to call out of a call, you know, we often feel very guilty. Like we know someone's going to have to cover that call for us. Carla, did you feel um, guilty when you realized that you were going to be out for some period of time and adjust your schedule? And, and, you know, I think you said the schedule adjustment included not taking any calls. So, you know, knowing that your colleagues were going to have to cover for you, um, you know, did that produce guilt? Was that difficult? Um, Because so many other anesthesiologists had fallen ill before I did, and because I had fallen ill with not just an illness, but with what was considered terminal illness, um, I didn't initially think I would live past two years. So no, I, there, there was no, no room for, for guilt um, for me in, in that regard. And with regard to the uh, decreased schedule, I actually took a very significant pay cut, which I am still very more than grateful to have taken that pay cut because it has afforded me life. Yeah. Um, well, thanks. I, I'm glad, uh, you know, I, I certainly, I wish no one felt that guilt. I mean, I, I, you know, with our residents, uh, I try to tell them, you know, this is you sh- the last thing you need to add on top of feeling ill is that is, is guilt that you're mm-hmm. having to take the time. But, um, unfortunately, obviously a lot, a lot of folks do, and I'm glad you did not. Um, how about you, Halle? Did you, um, experience any guilt around having to take time? Um, yes, I felt extremely guilty. I mean, I haven't take time yet for, um, I, you know, I, I still, I'm still working and I, um, you know, I haven't started my journey um, with transplant yet. But um, um, every so often, if I have, um, you know, one of those uh, birth cysts or hemorrhagic cysts that happen like, you know, two or three times a year, I feel extremely guilty. Um, to burden my colleagues with extra workload. And I constantly question myself whether this pain, can I tolerate this pain going to um, work? Like, is this possible? So it's just like, um, feel that, um, you know, we, we think that our 
sickness or disease or pain is not real. Um, you know, uh, we see so many sick patients all the time that um, somehow we think we are immune. And um, yeah, I felt guilty. I um, I just um, um, and I I even feel guilty when I find a kidney um, to go for transplant. So yeah, I don't know why, but it's there. Is there anything that helps with that? You know, I talked to um, with my uh, boss about it, and he was very helpful. Um, I decided to cut my days to uh, four days a week, my same as Carla. So this way, I have a day off. So um, uh, in order to be on transplant, you have to constantly go too many, you know, procedures, CT scans, and see cardiologists and all that stuff. So I try to put all those in that one day. And um, at least, you know, I can achieve what I can achieve without, um, you know, um, affecting our schedule as much. Great. Thank you. You know, when we think about missing work, obviously disability insurance comes to mind. I wonder if, if either one of you could talk a little bit about, you know, just tell people what, what is there's obviously short-term disability, there's long-term disability. What would you, you know, just a little bit of information. What, what is the difference? What do you think people should know about those? Uh, I can address that. Um, so short-term disability typically covers three to six months. In our particular institution, it's automatically guaranteed um, as you don't have to sign up for it actively in, in your benefits, you, you automatically get it. Um, long-term disability uh, can cover two, five, 10 uh, years or up until retirement. And the coverage includes up to 80% of your gross monthly income. It is employer-sponsored, uh, employer um, though there are private options as well. Okay. So that's really good to know. And and what role, you know, if you're seeing, obviously, when you get a diagnosis like this, you're going to have a physician, whether it's an oncologist or a nephrologist or, you know, whatever, um, you're going to have a treating physician. What role can they play or what should you people be asking them to help with in terms of getting disability coverage? Hala, do you want me to take that one? Yeah. yeah okay. All right. Um, so the treating physician has a form she can fill out when applying for workplace accommodations. And in that form, he or she can detail the specifics of the schedule you need at work in order to be successful. My doctor also wrote that I needed frequent breaks, access to water, and the bathroom, which was immensely helpful as I now have to drink a gallon of water a day, which would otherwise be impossible for an anesthesiologist. Um, most, just so you know, most cancer centers have an entire team devoted to executing these forms. So you don't have to worry about burdening your doctor since guilt is uh, something that we deal with. Um, what's interesting is this team practice in oncology is quite similar to what we see in pediatrics. There is this element of social responsibility, uh, which surprised me. Yeah. Now, you know, Halle, I know you mentioned, and, and Carl, I think you also mentioned, um, one of the initial fears was, you know, what happens to my family? They get their health insurance through me. So what does happen to health insurance if you have to take leave to get treated? Um, you know, what happens or if you got on disability, do you what happens to your health insurance? And then if your family gets health insurance through your job, what happens to that? Any thoughts? Um, just that health insurance continues while you're on medical leave under the Family Medical Leave Act. If unable to work or medical leave has run out, COBRA coverage is guaranteed for 18 months. Um, medical leave also can be intermittent. It doesn't have to be taken as a whole chunk of time, um, which is what how I've used it. Okay, great. That's important to know. 
you've both mentioned um, your your bosses uh, being really supportive. So do you, would you recommend to people that they let their boss know? Um, and if so, right away, or, or is it worth wait? You know, is it a good idea to wait? How, what do you recommend people do in terms of letting their supervisor know? Very, uh, this part can be very, it's depending on your specific situation. And Kale and I have slightly different uh, environments that we work in. Um, my being in a uh, pediatric hospital and that was, that was still small, um, created a safe space for me to feel comfortable talking. Um, so I think speaking early, um, if you have, if you feel psychologically safe, uh, you should speak early to your, at least your chair or whoever's in charge of your, of your department. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think in my situation, transparency was a strength. Ale, how about you? What did you, what was your approach and what do you recommend to people? Um, I was very embarrassed to talk about my illness to, to my boss the same day that Carla said, I was thinking that, you know, this is something that, you know, shameful. I brought it to, on myself. And you know, I think as a physician, again, I repeat this again, it's just like we feel that we are invincible and yeah, that's not true. Um, so I talked to my boss when um, I knew that I um, was placed in a transplant list. Um, and it was um, the waiting list for um, transplant, at least in Northeast, is four to uh, five years. Uh, but um, you never know. I mean, it's just... Uh, um, you may find uh, somebody that volunteers or, you know, they call you earlier with cadaver. So I needed to notify them because as uh, you never know when you go out um, and they were, they were very supportive. And I know that this is not a case in many places, but I was lucky enough for them to let me know, to tell me that obviously, you know, if, if you need, you know, to go to go, they're going to cover you. Oh, good. Great. Thank you. That's awesome. Carla, I know you said um, that one of the things that really helped you was telling your colleagues, uh, you know, talk a little bit about that. What, um, what do you recommend to people in terms of telling their colleagues? Um, how, how do they break the news to their colleagues and what would you recommend? Well, it kind of depends on your individual situation. Um, you know, some practices are quite huge. So I think that would be difficult to announce at a meeting, especially such sensitive information. Um, fortunately we had little huddles, um, so these tiny little meetings of just our department in the morning. And so, uh, it's, they're, they're done at 6.45 in the morning. So at one huddle, that's when I broke the news. I told my chairman, I would like to break the news. And so that's, that's where I broke the news. So, so I just was very public about it. Um, but again, we're talking about a pediatric hospital. that's very tiny with men and women who choose to work with sick children and, there's something very special about that population. No matter where you go in the world, people who choose to work with children have incredible capacity for empathy. I've, I've never met such extraordinary people in all of my life. Um, and I'm grateful to be in this profession. Great. Um, so we talked, both of you have talked about, um, you know, that you, you are able at the moment to still work and you have adjusted schedules um, to make that happen. Do you want to add anything in terms of um, recommendations to people if they need to figure out how to get to required tests, appointments, work up, um, you know, and doing that while working? Any any pieces of advice you want to add? I think it's just like if you can, um, you know, afford um, to cut your FTEs 
um, that helps you a lot because you know mentally you prepare yourself that you will have that day off and you can put everything on that day um, to or if you know they put a um, you know your uh, test for another day you can switch it with someone else because now you have a day off that you can kind of give it to someone else and work for them another day so I think that is uh, the only solution that I find that you can still work and um, don't be put pressure on your colleagues at the same time you know have the time off to do take care of yourself as well yeah, I agree with uh, Halik 100%. Like um, she said, I also regain energy for my non-clinical day. Um, it, it, you know, a lot depends on whether your treatment is bearable. Um, and I actually do, like Halik, I uh, get my scans and my work, my like healthcare work done on my day off that is scheduled. So I don't have to ask for time off and I don't have to use it in my FMLA because I don't want to tap into that. Um, I also even go see my expert oncologist at Hopkins during vacation. I use my vacation time. It's worth it to me. Um, it's worth it to me to maintain a, a good working relationship with Nemours. And it's worth it to me to dedicate the time to travel up um, to Maryland and see, have dedicated time to see my oncologist and we can just review things and, and plan ahead. Um, and I think that, that that works really, really well. I, I do love having two oncologists. Great. Thank you. And as you said before, FMLA gives you, you know, guarantees you 12 weeks of, uh, of it doesn't have to be, uh, it could be at least unpaid. It could be paid yes. obviously, depending on your employer um, every year. And I think that resets every 12 months, right? So, Correct. Um, and as you mentioned before, Carla, it doesn't have to be taken in one big chunk. So you can use That's it in pieces. Right. That's yeah. right. You can use it in pieces if you know. Um, I also do, uh, sometimes I won't take all of the vacation that is allotted to me per year just to have a little buffer in case I need more than FMLA. Like I want to have something in the bank. <laughs> yeah. Now I do think that you have to be employed for a full year in order to qualify for FMLA by a given employer. I know that's true because yes. uh, yeah, some of our residents um, in their first year here don't qualify yet. Now that's okay. Cause we have policies where they get leave just, it's not through FMLA, but I would, right, right. you know, say for people, you know, if they're in their, if you're in your first year of employment with an employer, you need to look into what the options are because you may, you may not be covered by FMLA yet. Correct. Okay. Um, so I'm very curious to hear uh, from each of you, you know, obviously we, we started off by saying, um, we don't often think about doctors getting ill because of course we're the ones taking care of ill people. And so I wonder, do you think being a doctor has helped or hurt your ability to navigate your own illness? Carla, maybe we'll start with you. Okay. Um, so I think being a doctor was both a help and a hindrance. Uh, as a doctor, I failed to have faith that I would survive. I had more faith in statistics than I did in grace or science. Hard data and statistics do not help your spirit or your sense of hope. If you only hold on to statistics, you might feel like you're quote unquote prepared but you're actually cutting yourself off from the potential of the best possible outcome. In this type of journey, you really do need a tremendous amount of faith, hope, and love. Um, so even though um, I am a doctor, um, I still, with the new treatments and cancer that are coming down the pipeline, um, I still struggle to understand some of the uh, upcoming newer immunologic therapies. 
As a result, um, I actually took an immunology and an immune oncology course online at Harvard Medical School in order order to better understand the therapies. Um, I think this is where being a doctor helps you, that gunner, go-getter attitude uh, is an asset that you can tap into uh, to help your support group and to help other patients uh, find better treatments. Um, I've also been able to connect with the uh, Cystic Fibrosis Foundation through some of my colleagues um, at Nemours. And the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation was fantastic because they have been, uh, they do some mentoring. So they helped to mentor ALK positive. So that was something I, that I, I learned as well is that a nonprofit can sometimes mentor another nonprofit um, and help them grow. So that was a very nice surprise. Great. Holly, how about you? Um, do you find that uh, it was helpful uh, to be a doctor? Did that help you throughout this process or do you think it, it some in, in any way was detrimental? Um, uh, same with me, but both. It helped uh, when it's up, when you need treatment um, and you can easily get inside information about different institutions and know who's who and stuff like that. But it can also hurt. Um, I find that physicians, me included, um, tend not to explain the process to a patient that is also a physician. You know, I'm as an anesthesiologist, I am guilty too. Uh, we assume that they know it all and jump to the detailed explanation that we do with other patients. Um, I would have preferred to hear each step of the process that, um, you know, to explain to me as if I'm not a physician. Uh, but, you know, um, and the truth is that we work in different specialties. We don't know, like, ins and outs of exactly what's happening with um, everything. I've never been in a dialysis center, so I don't know how it works. And, you know, I see the patients, but never been there. So I would have loved somebody to explain that to me, but nobody did. Um, I was annoyed by it, but at the same time, I felt awkward to ask. So it's kind of like it was so strange because, you know, I was like, you know, they were going like, oh, this is going to happen. And I was going with it like, as if like, but it was not really enough. So that part was awkward. Mm-hmm. Same. You think, <laughs> yeah, thank you both. Do you think there's a any way in which... Um, having gone through this and continuing to go through it has helped you relate to patients differently than you did before? Definitely. Yeah. I think uh, um, when um, I was um, diagnosed um, uh, with uh, PKD, but then especially when I um, felt the need to go through dialysis at one point, uh, it made everything different. It's just like you I felt like become more compassionate towards, you know, patients that they were sick and suffering. And um, um, for many of our patients that in pre-op, for example, they're like angry or stressed out and post-op you meet them and they're totally like nice and changed. It's because they're so much stressed out. And um, as, a, as a patient, when I go to a, an institution that's not like I, I know no one, I feel the difference that how stressed out we can be despite being a physician mm-hmm. of what's happening to you next. So yeah, it changed, it changed a little bit for me. Yeah. Arla, how about you? Any thoughts? Yeah, I am. Um, I had such ex- 
extraordinary care from my pulmonologist and my two oncologists that uh, they actually inspired me a lot and how to look at patients differently. Um, and one thing that I uh, experienced was uh, peculiar in that I felt so much more compassion um, that I didn't even know what I had for patients that sometimes it actually made it difficult. I, I've, on a couple occasions, I lost my clinical distance and I struggled to regain it. Um, like I would get emotional or tearful for the patient. And I, it's like my tolerance for suff- the suffering of others has declined significantly. Like I, I get almost a visceral reaction if I see someone suffering, which is helpful that I'm in the business of alleviating suffering. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah okay. So that was a, that surprised me. Okay, thank you. So I'm interested to hear what you think we could do to make this experience, it's never going to be easy, but knowing what you know now, having, having been through it, what could we do for people who, and unfortunately there will be people who struggle with similar things, doctors who find out that they have a diagnosis like yours or, or something similar, what can we do to make the path a little easier for them? Any, any thoughts? Um, yeah, I was. Um, that's why we started um, this talk, and we decided to be um, open about it, about our uh, disease, to hopefully create a physician um, support network where we can bring those of us who are going through um, the similar experience together. Um, this way, we have an opportunity to share our personal experiences, um, even stupid stuff. You know, it's not just like you sometimes. Uh, have fears and emotions that you only can talk to someone that you know, it's going through it or went through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can give each other information about disease and treatments, like the same way that I get it from, you know, uh, online patients that are not even physicians. Mm-hmm. Tips uh, on dealing how um, to deal with insur- insurance and disability, you know, that's, uh, that's very important. You don't know it because, you know, you usually don't use it. Um, workplace implications, like uh, what do you want to do, like uh, again with your days and when you need tests. Um, we can talk about work-like life balance and um, talk about effective coping strategies that can help us all together. So uh, this whole um, um, idea of um, started uh, um, in in a hope that we can uh, come together and create a physician support network um, that once, you know, you, you kind of click on sick physician, you find something. It's not just like a physician that's taking care of a sick patient, but a sick physician itself, healing itself. Yeah, yeah, I, can't agree, I can't agree more with Tale. Um, Jed, I, I think that this is long overdue to have some sphere, some platform where physicians can go and safely ask questions and safely share this is all very, you know, Hala and I have, you know, decided quite deliberately to share very personal information um, with the community of physicians and whoever else might be listening. But um, a lot of physicians don't feel comfortable at all talking about it and feel very embarrassed and private. Um, and the fear is the fear. I cannot emphasize enough how immense that fear is. Um, so 
I know with Alka Positive, we have a closed Facebook group. That's how the support group works. And then you can ask any question. Uh, people can't come and peek at it. Um, you have to be uh, admitted by the administration. And then um, only caregivers or the patients themselves are on it. Um, so something maybe similar to that, um, if not even just like a website that is updated, something, um, there's definitely a, a need. Yeah. It, one thing that's really stood out, I think, in in both of your stories is how you got you, you certainly got a lot of help from things like support groups, but there isn't a support group just for physicians. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This, that, that would be so powerful. Right? Powerful. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because like, you know, most physicians are pretty smart, but we also do things that are not so smart. And um, I think together, uh, you, you just go f- like Peloton <laughs> together. We go far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'd like to end by asking each of you, what gives you hope? Holly, do you want to start? Uh, yeah. um, before I start that, can I bring something else up? Please. It's, uh, it's um, you know, both me and Carla had um, disease that is kind of like, you know, physical um, um, problem. Um, we need also to address um, physicians who are dealing with mental issues and they have no way of going and they don't talk to anyone because it's easier to talk to my boss about, um, you know, uh, end-stage renal disease or even cancer, but not um, someone who's going through deep depression. And as Carla started earlier about the incidence of suicide um, in physicians, um, I think um, having a support group that um, we can, uh, people can easily talk about um, their, their problems, and whether it is a physical issue or um, mental um, problems, it's very important to um, have something like that for physician. Open it up because right now it's just like it's a taboo. Nobody wants to talk about it. So people who suffer from it just sometimes we hear about suicide and that's too late. We don't want to be there anymore. As um, as far as what gives me hope, um, I um, just um, kindness. People's kindness really gives me hope. Hope like it's just like you know. Uh, the daily kindness um, of well, that I go through, um, um, being able to just um, live in this world with all these, uh, you know, beauties. Um, I, um, I I also paint. Um, I um, do a lot of painting with acrylics and uh, and oil, and that gives me um, very comfort and uh, you know, calm me down. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. And I'm really glad you pointed out, uh, made the point about uh, mental illness, I think, for sure. Um, it's something that we we all know has, has received a lot less um, attention than physical illness for a long time. It's a lot harder and for a lot of people, I think, to like you said, to talk about mental illness and um, and yet all this applies. And so um, really, really important for to, for folks suffering from from mental illness to be able to get support, too. So thanks for bringing that up. Um, Carla, how about you? What What gives you hope? Um, what gives me hope is what gave Dr. Jerome Groupman hope uh, as he wrote in the measure of our days. Um, I derive hope from the lab. Of course, I don't actually have a lab, <laughs> but I do attend meetings with pharmaceutical companies and researchers in both academia and industry, um, as a member of the clinical trials committee on ALK positive. And what I learned from their presentations, uh, about the therapies in the pipelines gives me hope. 
Watching cells regenerate themselves from cancerous to healthy, normal cells is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Um, I'm so thankful to the ALK positive researchers who um, help us um, and partner with us in a collaborative spirit. Uh, there are things that give me hope. My children, um, Gen Z, I love you. <laughs> I love how accepting, such acceptance in this generation. So such a such a warmth, um, and I see it in my teenage patients. And I thank God for my children because they really help me connect with my teenagers. Um, music gives me hope. Art gives me hope, like Halle mentioned. Um, listening to my daughter sing, oh. It gives me so much hope for the future and uh, watching my other daughter dance ballet or, or write her stories, such hope and nature, just the simple cycle of rebirth. Uh, we live in Florida. I have like, we live on a lake. There's all these trees and birds everywhere. So you can't help but see how like rebirth every, every year, the cycles of life and that um, always something can be reborn. Um, I think that gives me so much hope. Thank you. Thank you both. I, I think that your stories and your advice and thoughts will give hope to a lot of people. So thank you so much for, for sharing. Um, I want to turn to the part of our show where we recommend something to the audience. Um, could be something related to, to what we've been talking about, or it could be something just fun um, that you'd recommend people check out. Um, so Halle, maybe we'll start with you. What would you recommend uh, to the audience that they, they check out? Um, yeah, I um, a book um, with um, uh, Prema Chandran. Um, the book called um, When Things Fall Apart. Um, the book, this book gave me confidence to make it through all these uh, setbacks. Um, uh, it says, she says at one point that the most fundamental harm we can do to ourselves is to remain ignorant by now, but not having the courage and respect to look at ourselves honestly and gently. And that that resonates with me. It's just like you know, taking care of yourself um, at the same time while you're taking care of your patients. Um, and uh, another thing is the movie, um, the Diving Bell and the Butterfly. It's a French movie, but it's uh, it's, it's a very interesting movie about um, John Dominic Bobby who had a devastating stroke in his forties. He was like super rich and everything. And he goes through lockdown syndrome and all he can do is just, uh, you know, talk with blinking of his eyes. And he dictates his memory of it with just blinking of his eyes. And the, and the movie is, it's, um, I think it's very deep and it's, um, it's beautiful. I mean, the, 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 the whole, um, way that it talks about, um, you know, how you can see the beauty of life even in you know states like that uh, was very interesting to me. Thanks so much for sharing those. Carla, how about you? Um, I would like to recommend The Yearling, um, which is a book that was written maybe a hundred years ago by Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings, um, winner of a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, extraordinary coming of age story about a boy living actually where I live now in central Florida. Um, one of my favorite places to go is Ocala because Ocala has one of the world equestrian centers. And uh, my daughter, one of my daughters rides and I love horses. And it takes you back to the Ocala woods um, where the equestrian center is now. <laughs> and uh, it shows you Florida the way it was 
with all its beauty before so much construction, before so much, uh, so much inhabitants came. Um, so if you enjoy nature and you enjoy getting taken back into a pristine forest, I, I love nature. So um, for me, it's a way to get to know not just nature of Florida, but also um, the heart and soul of the people that have lived here before I came here. Uh, I think it's very important that we try to understand each other in this world. And this is one way I found of understanding others. Awesome. That sounds fantastic. Thank you so much. And I'm going to recommend um, a really wonderful book I read recently called We Are All Perfectly Fine. It's by a physician named Jillian Horton. And she tells a, it's a, a true story of her own struggle with burnout in medicine. And um, she talks about how um, she kind of um, did residency at a, a large program in Canada, actually, and, and how um, that transitioned into a kind of very high-powered career initially and how she got very burned out. And she talks about how that happened and then how she ended up at a kind of camp for burned out physicians and how <laughs> what she learned there and and how she she grew and thrived through that and um it's really interesting i think it really resonates probably with anybody who's who's done at the very least training let alone been a, a, an attending physician so i think really um interesting to read a powerful a powerful read and um one that that probably would help a lot of folks think through their own potential burnout these days um so check it out uh, we are all perfectly fine by jillian horden uh, again Halle and carla thank you so much for not only coming on the show, but uh, having the courage and willingness to share your stories. Uh, I think it will really mean a lot to a lot of people. And um, I'm really grateful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Judd. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, that was really incredibly powerful. I hope you got as much out of that as, as I certainly did. And, and certainly, I think that folks out there who needed to hear that someone else was going through something like this, I really hope you connect with this um, and that this helps you. Uh, a mentor of mine once said that there's just a very ephemeral veil that separates those of us who things are going well for from those of us who are experiencing tragedy. And I think that that is incredibly true. Any one of us at any moment could receive the kind of diagnosis that Carla or Harle has and and uh, be struggling with the same things. And I hope that I or anyone would have the courage they've had to reach out and um, try to help others as they go through this. All right. Well, please do let us know what you thought. Go to the website, ACRAC.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit, and we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at ACRAC Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Ryan Okonski is our social media manager. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. 
Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.